0: Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have Mike Meharry back on to talk about, well, we don't actually know what we're going to talk about. This is probably the very first episode where I did not show up with an outline because I knew that we could just have a conversation and it would be entertaining. So if it's not, you can email Mike and (laughs) tell him how terrible a guest he was. (laughs) Or you could email me, podcast at libertarianchristians.com and tell me, I should come to an episode with an outline next time or you can just, you know, praise us and thank us for bringing you the best commentary and thought in libertarian and anarchist thinking. Mike, thanks for joining me for a conversation that we're about to have. <laughs> thanks for having me. We're going to talk about stuff. Yeah, there we go. Stuff with Mike Meharry. That's going to be the episode That's title. That's
1: the episode title. There you go.
0: You're welcome. Yeah, the problem with that is people will probably think we're talking about the consumerism, you know, debate because wasn't there like a st- a video out like five years ago, like why stuff makes us, you know, bad people, like you know, the accumulation of stuff. You remember yeah. uh
1: you remember the old um oh gosh, what was that silly cartoon with the uh, cucumber and the tomato, Bob the Tomato? Oh yeah, Tales. Veggie Tales. Yeah, they had one with Stuffmart. Remember Stuff Mart? <laughs> that was like my kids era. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my kids too. Well, Netflix redid that. So they uh
0: they have more updated, better graphics now. Oh wow. Yeah. Cool. They got an upgrade. So let, let's talk about sound money. The reason I wanted to talk about that with you, and I didn't show up with an outline, but Mike, and just for you to know, Mike and I did talk a little bit about like, hey, we can talk about this. We can talk about this. Okay, we have something to talk about. I want to talk about sound money in part because I've been listening to the audiobook of the book uh, by Safadin Amu called The Bitcoin Standard. And you might think, and I actually was under this impression that there'd be this 12 hours of audio. I think it was 12 hours. So it's a pretty lengthy book about Bitcoin and here's what's really cool. First chapter is about Bitcoin. The next eight chapters is about sound money and the history of money and gold. And there's actually a, I think in chapter two or three, you hear about uh, an ancient version of what would be the most equivalent scenario of what Bitcoin is today. So there's this, on my mind is sound money lately and how important it is. Now I learned I don't know, 10 years ago or so, and I was becoming, uh, 15 years ago or so, and I was becoming a libertarian, that sound money is super important, not only as a Christian, but also as just you know, for human flourishing and society to function and for people to actually, you know, gain value out of their labor. But we're seeing sound money being just sort of ignored as a topic today. So I don't know, Mike, what what kind of thoughts do you have around sound money and why have you been thinking about it?
1: Well, first off, there is no sound money in the financial global economic system as it exists today. It's all fiat money. Well, I shouldn't say there is no sound money, but the basis of uh, the world economy, including the economy in the U.S., is not sound money. It's based on fiat. So what do we mean by fiat currency? Well, basically, it has no intrinsic value. It's backed by nothing but the government. And it probably wouldn't be money if it weren't for the fact that the government said it was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people like to talk about, uh, you know, oh, we have this capitalism and this horrible free market. When you actually look at the very foundation of our economy and the fact that the government controls the money, there is no free market because if you don't have a free market in money, you can't have a free market in really anything at all. So mm-hmm. it's an extremely important issue. And, and you know, from a practical standpoint, why why should you care about sound money? Well, the way that the government and the central bank and other players are manipulating the money? it's literally stealing from you. all of this borrowing and spending that we've seen over the last several months with the coronavirus pandemic response the u s government's borrowed over five trillion dollars in eighteen months. I mean, it can't even wrap my head around that number mm. and and people are like, "Oh, this is great because you know we're getting checks in the mail and and you know we've got robust unemployment insurance, you know everything's great. We don't have to pay for this because taxes are low, right? Well, we are being taxed by the devaluation of our money. So every time that the Federal Reserve sticks another dollar in circulation that didn't exist before, it's literally devaluing the money that you're holding. It's, it's a tax that is hidden, and it disproportionately hurts the poor, the elderly, people who are on fixed incomes, people who are savers. So it's really a pernicious thing that the government does that most people aren't even aware of. So I have
0: have a question then. This is a
1: like, you know, better of two evils kind of thing.
0: I remember when I was learning about how the Federal Reserve just added zeros to the ledger, right? And how that meant that one of the reasons that this was worse for the people who are poor, older, etc. is because the people who get the money first are the wealthy and politically well-connected. And could there be an argument made that at least stimulus checks are sort of counterbalancing that in some sense because well, at least like i mean we bill signed stimulus checks in the mail pretty much right away the people who are allegedly not benefiting from the extra money are getting it pretty well up front at the same time that the big corporations are might be getting you know this or that break or or advantage
1: sure yeah i could i could see the plausibility of that but it's still based on something that is not sustainable in the long run. And I think where people get confused about money is we associate money with wealth, right? We associate money with uh, being more wealthy. So when we get those stimulus checks in our accounts, we're excited Mm -hmm. because we, we can buy more stuff. The problem is the money isn't really worth anything. It's the stuff that we can buy. Mm-hmm. And so what we've got now in the economy is we've got all these people that have all of this cash. We don't have any more stuff. So the price of stuff is rapidly going to go up. Well, it's not going to go back down in the future. So let's all hope that uh, you know, all of our uh, wages go up uh, proportionally, which you know is pretty unlikely. But the issue is that eventually you run out of the building blocks to make that stuff. So so we're buying all of this stuff that's being made and we're not doing anything to accumulate capital to build more stuff in the future, if that makes sense. So imagine mm-hmm. just for a second, just to use an analogy, imagine that that you're gonna build a house and uh, you know there's X number of bricks in the world. You've got this plan for the house and you've got just this pile of cash that you're gonna be able to use to build your house you're not even thinking about the fact that there are only a limited number of bricks. So you start building this house and you go along and all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, there's not enough bricks here because nobody's bothered to make the bricks. Everybody thought they were Mm -hmm. rich because they were holding a bunch of cash. Well, obviously you can't finish that house because you don't have enough bricks. This is what's going to happen in the economy down the road. We're Mm -hmm. living high on the hog right now and we're living basically on borrowed stuff. And unless we start saving and developing the capital under, uh, infrastructure at some point the bubble will pop the economy will collapse we'll have another massive recession and you know ostensibly we'll repeat the process over again so what happens
0: if everybody i know is talking about basically either investing in their home or using it to pay off student debt or they're just going to put it in the bank is that a better use than going out and buying I was just going to about say a, buying a flat screen TV, but I don't know if there's another type of TV that we're supposed to buy. I don't know, a movie projection TV that's the more luxury good. I don't know. That's just the stereotypical go right. out and buy a flat screen TV. Is it better that we save and, and put down debt? I mean, would that actually help, you know, thwart the the coming tsunami of depression? Well,
1: the money is the already out there. So, you know, I, I don't know. I think from an individual standpoint, I think you're better off spending the money now because we know that that money is going to rapidly devalue because we mm-hmm. put all of this money into the system. So you're really better off buying a hard asset, you know, a TV. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, you know, if you want to invest, you know, looking at things that are going to go up in price. So commodities, oil, gold, yeah. silver, yeah. Bitcoin, these, these types of things. That's really the best way personally to use the money. Now, we would be better off as a society if the society was more prone towards saving because then you would have that capital stock. But the entire yeah. system is built to discourage that. I mean, that's the whole yep, point yep. of this monetary policy is to incentivize you to borrow money, to spend money, to not hold on to money because we want to stimulate the economy. It's literally now. the opposite of capitalism. Yeah it's, yeah, it's consumerism is what it is. Yeah. And, and you know, the ironic thing, it's interesting if you look at the um, trade deficit, you know, if Donald Trump was gonna fix the trade deficit. That was his big thing. Well, the trade deficit's actually at a record level right now. He left office with it at a record level and it's continued to go up. And the reason this is, is that we're not building anything in the United States. We have, you know, what, like 10 or 19 million people that are unemployed that are collecting checks and buying stuff. Nobody's making stuff. So mm-hmm. we're getting all of the stuff from China and, and other countries where people are actually going to work and producing things. And you have to wonder at what point those folks are going to wake up and say, you know what, we don't really need any more of these dollars. They're not really worth all that much. Maybe we should keep this stuff here and enjoy it ourselves. Uh, and, and <laughs> you know, it's in a sense, the rest of the world is subsidizing our luxury because we have the reserve currency. There's no guarantee that we're going to have the reserve currency forever. In fact, right. it, you know, typically about every 200 years, the uh, world reserve currency shifts. So, you know, it used to be the British pound. You know, now it's the dollar. Yeah. At some point, it's not going to be the dollar. And so we've got about what 60 to 80 years until it's done. Uh, I mean, I you know, some people I talk to think that we might be within a decade of it being done.
0: That's not inconceivable to think of it within the next one to two decades as something else kind of taking over. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you know, there's so many factors and I would never make a prediction because you never know what's going to happen. But, you know, you look at the growing economic power of China. You look at the Russians, a lot of the big players geopolitically in the world, they're a little bit tired of the United States pushing them around. Mm -hmm. They're a little bit tired of us dictating their foreign policy. You know, uh, back when uh, the U.S. was putting a bunch of pressure on Iran, they actually blocked The uh, Russians from some access to the world monetary system, you know, kind of to push them to go along with sanctions. So the U.S. has used their power and prestige as the issuer of the reserve currency. They've used that as a foreign policy tool. And over the last four or five years, you've started to see a lot of movement of these other countries trying to kind of separate themselves from this this American monetary system that's based on the dollar. So you're seeing the Russians, for instance, have created an alternate payment system to the uh, the so-called SWIFT system that handles global payments today. The Chinese have uh, come up with a digital yuan, you know, a digital currency. So they're doing these things to try to... Uh, pull themselves away from the dollar. The Russians have divested themselves of almost all of their U.S. debt. They actually hold more gold than dollars now, which has never happened before in history. So you're starting to see these countries that are like, they're recognizing that the U.S. is using its economic leverage against them, and they're trying to figure out a way to wiggle out of that. And, you know, who would blame them? Well, it's it's coming up with a backup plan. And that backup plan,
0: if all of the backup plans of all these other nations converge on the same unit, then There could be a new currency. And it might even be something, you know, it could be something along the lines of Bitcoin where it's, you know, kind it's universal, it's boundaryless. There's no geographical region. Yeah. Interestingly, just a side note about Bitcoin because of the book I'm reading, it's like, it occurred to me that like, or he pointed out in the book that like, if there's a physical asset like gold, And let's say there was a nuclear bomb dropped on like Fort Knox or wherever the gold is being held, then it's gone. Whereas with Bitcoin, because of its status as everywhere on Earth digitally, that can't be. And I thought, oh, oh, that's an interesting point that it's more indestructible than gold.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of, you know, I kind of in the middle on that. It sounds a little too good to be true to say it that way. Yeah, well, I see the advantages. I see the advantages of of holding both, to be honest with you. And, and I mm-hmm. actually do. That's that's my strategy. And people always, oh, gold or Bitcoin? Oh, well, why not both? You know, why, why do we have to choose? <laughs> I, I think there are advantages. You know, you, you look at just even short term. Fear of missing out, Mike. That's the reason yeah. why well, people yeah, are even go. questioning it. <laughs> you know, but if you look at something like Bitcoin, you know, just think about what happened in Texas just a few months ago when the entire power grid went down. Well, if you're dependent on electricity for all of your wealth, you know, that could be a problem as well. So, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that that it couldn't mm. be destroyed. You know, that same nuclear bomb could create a magnetic pulse that would fry the entire electrical grid, and then it might become very difficult to transact business in in a purely digital yeah, way. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, so in that case, you want to have something that you can hold in your hand. So, you know, yeah. I like silver for for a barter metal, but I think really the bottom line from this from this discussion is people should be prepared for the eventuality that you know maybe the dollar isn't the reserve currency and and maybe you know maybe you do face something in the realm of hyperinflation or you know just looking at the situation that we've seen in in other countries where banks fail or or governments block access to currency there's all kinds mm-hmm. of scenarios and just like you should be prepared for you know getting a flat tire on the interstate you should be prepared financially for whatever may happen to the financial system. So, yeah. you know, like I said, my strategy is to be very diverse in, in how your wealth is held. You know, I have, I have some investments in stocks, but I also have some gold. I have some silver. I have some crypto. And uh, I think it's wise to, you know, they always say that, put, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. So,
0: but yeah, I think mm-hmm.
1: it is important. Don't count on your dollar because, you know, there's certainly plenty of things in the system that should make you go, ooh, <laughs> Speaking
0: of things in the system that make me go, ooh, (laughs) I'm going to completely hard pivot to something else right now. That's awesome. (laughs) This whole concept of free speech lately, have you noticed that there are, you know, we had some shootings in the past weeks as of we're recording this, which I don't think is too far from where we're going to release this episode. But we've had some shootings in the past few weeks and you know, people are talking about gun control again. People are talking about, you know, you know, registering guns because we register cars and all these other things. Well, usually the, the common retort by people who are in favor of gun rights. And I, and I would count myself among them is that the first amendment was never like, they come out with these like sort of memes that are saying something along the lines of like, well, the First Amendment was never meant to protect you behind your keyboard. Because people will say well, that the Second Amendment was never meant for you to have assault rifles. Like it was meant for muskets and I don't know, whatever else they had. I'm actually afraid that that argument doesn't even work anymore because I don't think people who are on the left really care about free speech in the first place. Like it's yeah. beginning to it's beginning to scare me in a way that's like, we... Even in some sense, free speech might be more important than gun rights in a cultural sense, maybe not in a like physical protection sense, but like in a like signs of coming bad times when free speech is not a value by a secular
1: pluralistic culture, we're in trouble. Yeah, I agree completely. Just on a little side note, the idea that the Second Amendment wasn't for assault rifles is absurd. Because the whole point of the Second Amendment was so that you would be able to uh, face down a tyrannical government, muskets were adequate for that. In the uh, <laughs> so so, I would actually argue that the Second Amendment, you know, put it in today's context, we should be able to have bazookas. Yeah. So yeah, so there you heard it there first, Mahari. Uh, <laughs> Mahari's for private ownership
0: of bazookas. The, the, um, the, okay, let me let me stick on that tangent for just a second. My typical response to people who say, well, does it mean that we should own, you know, a fighter jet in our driveway or whatever? I mean, that's a long driveway. If you need a fighter jet in your driveway. But right. I was like, look, it says if you can bear the arm. So, like, if you can handle it, you should be allowed to own it. That was kind of the, like, the standard retort that I've had so that people don't think that I'm in favor of uh, an individual owning a nuclear weapon.
1: Right. Well, and and actually, the if you want to get into the into the the weeds, if you look at the definitions of the Constitution, that you're you're actually on track of what the meaning of the Constitution was. It it mm-hmm. was keep and bear arms. It was cons- arms were considered things that you could carry on your person. Yeah. And so that that was actually kind of the definition that they were yeah, yeah. working with. But but certainly a musket was an assault rifle, quote unquote, which isn't really a thing. I mean, that's a made up term, but. An assault rifle would be the equivalent of a musket. It was basically the arms that the folks in the military were carrying. Of course, then you'll get that retort: "Well, you actually think you're going to face the U.S. Army with an AR-15?" And you know, my response to that is: "Well, go talk to the uh, Taliban, <laughs> you know, because basically they're running around with uh, rocket-propelled grenades and, and uh, AK-47s." So yeah,
0: well, and you know, the AK. Or the whatever the commonly non assault rifle that people think is assault rifle in the uh in the u s was a r fifteen is that what the common
1: yeah that's what everybody everybody yeah, yeah that's what
0: everybody uses like i've actually i've actually heard and read articles about stories in like the like northern Michigan or like areas where there are predators like animal predators not mm-hmm. domestic white terrorist predators that <laughs> you know, having an AR-15 actually is really the best protection against, like, the wolves in their area or coyotes or whatever. I can't sure. actually remember it, you know, draws to mind. I didn't write notes for this, listeners. Um, so I couldn't <laughs> look up the article because I didn't know I was going to talk about this. Just that's my out right now. Um, anyways, free speech. Yeah. How is this? I mean, how do you take the issue of free speech? Do you have, like, your standard mic drop in front of all your progressive friends as to here's why free speech is important?
1: Well, you know, this is a huge issue for me. I, For folks who don't know, my background is in journalism. And so I hold free speech near and dear because that is the the field and in, in the academic course of study I came out of. And I agree with you in that. I believe that, you know, if if I was going to say there's one right that we can absolutely protect, I would pick speech because it is imperative that we be able to... Talk about and examine ideas in order to have a functioning society. And I'm really concerned, as you are, about this drift toward certain speech is not permissible. I'm a free speech absolutist. I don't think there should be any limits at all on what people say. And not just that the government shouldn't censor it or shouldn't stop it. I think we need to live in a society. We need to hold as a value that we're going to respect people's right and ability to say whatever it is that they want to say, even if we find it absolutely horribly offensive or just outright wrong. Because when you start letting ideas get buried and festered that there's certain unapproved ideas, the first question is who decides what's approved and what isn't? Mm But then secondly, there's no way to ever test those ideas. So they just kind of sit and, and they fester underground, and you end up in a situation where you can't make good decisions. We cannot make good decisions when information is suppressed. And I think a really good example of that right now is what we've seen going on with the, uh, with the coronavirus stuff. You know, no matter where you stand on, you know what you think about coronavirus. It is undeniable that certain opinions and ideas, certain scientists, certain people that, in my view, have some credibility at some level, are literally being censored. We're seeing videos being taken down. Mm-hmm. You know, Tom Woods, somebody I know pretty well, had a video taken down that was, and all he was saying was that that lockdowns weren't the right approach to dealing with a pandemic. Taking wasn't down. even making
0: a scientific claim per se. No,
1: so so we can't even discuss this anymore. That is a dangerous world that we live in because. Then what we end up with is what we're we're rapidly moving toward is this idea that the government is the purveyor of information and ideas. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't really trust the government. You know, I'm not really comfortable with the CDC or whoever. I don't really view them as experts. So, you know, I guess that makes me a pariah and I should be canceled, right? Mm. But I think this is a dangerous thing. I took a, a journalism ethics or media ethics class when I was uh, when I was in journalism school. I know people would be saying, oh, that's an oxymoron. Uh, <laughs> but it was actually a fantastic class. And it was very interesting because it was taught by somebody that I would categorize politically as a really progressive lefty. She actually had a Quaker background, which was interesting, but she was real big into feminist issues. And at the time, I was still in my neocon phase. So she really annoyed me in a lot of ways, but she was a really good teacher. And we talked a lot about the importance of of free speech, you know, not just as the government doesn't have any power, but the fact that this should be an ideal that we hold up in a free and flourishing society. And uh, the philosopher that she really kind of stood on as a foundation was John Stuart Mill. And he actually talks about the importance of free speech and free expression in his uh, treatise on liberty. And I'm just going to run through, I actually have notes because unlike the host I prepared <laughs> for this interview, <laughs> it's okay. uh, yes, that was fun. Um, but I, I just want to run through. Basically, Mill had four reasons that we should never, ever suppress speech. The first one is that any opinion that is compelled to, su- if we compel an opinion to silence, that opinion may, for all we know, be true. And to deny this is to assume our own infallibility. So the most far out thing that you can imagine may be true. And you should be able to explore that and determine whether or not it is true or not. If you're actually sitting and thinking, well, I know everything that I know is true, well, then you're placing yourself, you know, basically on the level of, of God as some kind of omnipotent. He said, secondly, even if the silenced opinion is an error, it may commonly contain a portion of the truth. So, you know, something may be broadly wrong, But there may be a grain of truth to it. So, you know, take Tom Woods' argument for uh, against lockdowns. Maybe lockdowns are appropriate in certain situations, but what he's saying may have a grain of truth to it. So, if we silence it, we are forever barring the possibility of discovering that truth. Third, even if the opinion is not true, it's wholly untrue unless it is, here's how he put it, unless it is suffered to be and actually vigorously and earnestly contested, it will by most of those who receive it be held in the manner of a prejudice with little comprehension of feeling of its rational grounds. I said that completely wrong. This is if something is true and we know it's true. If we simply just assume it's true, it will be taken as dogma as opposed to people actually really drilling in and understanding and grasping the truth for themselves. So I completely blew that third one. Sorry. No, it's all good. And the last one, if the meaning of the doctrine itself will be in danger of being lost or enfeebled and deprived of its vital effect on the character and conduct, the dogma becoming a mere formal profession, ineffacious for good, but cumbering the ground and preventing the growth of any real heartfelt conviction from reason or personal experience. So Basically, all of that to say, we need to wrestle with ideas, even ideas that we think are untrue, even ideas that are absolutely untrue, because it will strengthen our thinking and it will allow the truth, the real truth to rise to the surface and become more and more obvious. We lose the truth when we start suppressing various ideas. Even awful, horrible ideas may have some valid truth to them or they need to be contested. And the other thing that I would add to that is when you start suppressing ideas, they get driven underground. They don't go away. You know, the real white supremacists aren't gonna disappear because they get canceled on Twitter. They're just gonna go somewhere else. And sometimes when those ideas start to fester, they become even more dangerous because there's nobody to challenge them. You know, they're all in their echo chamber by themselves. There's nobody to challenge them. How do you expect that idea not to fester and grow? my wife yeah. says it she says it pretty funny when we were having the uh, the big debate about the confederate flags of course this is kind of passé now we way past that but you know there was this should we get rid of confederate flags and they're offensive my wife is like no no we need to keep the confederate flags that way i know where i'm not supposed to go <laughs> you know she she saw it as a warning <laughs> sign and she says that is, is kind of you know kind of funny but it is, is true we just lose a lot yeah. when we start suppressing ideas, and it's just a dangerous thing. It's an, it's the height yeah. of arrogance to say I know this is a fact, and we should never allow anybody to say or express this thing. And, yeah, you know, it's it's almost this moral superiority, and and uh, uh, that's a dangerous thing. Yeah,
0: too. there's a lot of hubris involved. I mean, here's the question that a lot of people ask: Is like, at what point? You said who gets to decide what is true and what is not, and. You know, who gets to decide whatever should be, you know, the libertarian answer is the property owner. And while you were talking through your notes, that's why you messed it up because you actually took notes. <laughs> right, I would have done better just talking off top of my head. Just, yeah, probably. Uh, <laughs> while, you were, while you were talking, I got a notification on my phone from Facebook about the Facebook group that we run, that LCI runs, that there were two comments that went against their community standards Oh, no. So is this censorship or is Facebook, yeah, okay, they're right to do it. And they were topics that, I mean, it just occurred to me that the person who wrote the question and then the comments that got deleted or got removed or whatever, I'm like, oh, yeah, that invited this whole thing. But anyway, you know, is Facebook, I want to say is Facebook wrong? Uh, Let me say it this way or ask what you think here. Are they within their prerogative to do this? And then what does this also say about the wider culture?
1: Yeah. I'm going to sort of already touched on. I'm going to take a kind of a wishy-washy answer on this. And I'm going to say that that Facebook as a private entity and and let's set aside the debate on whether or not Facebook is really a private entity or not because I suspect a lot of this is being driven by things outside of Facebook. But that's let's just let's not even touch that. Let's accept on face that Facebook is a private entity it certainly has the right to impose whatever standards that it wants to. But to me, as a thinking, mentally functioning human being that has concerns about a flourishing society, I want to live in the best society as as possible. To me, simply invoking private property is not always enough. I think that there are other things that need to be in place in order to have a flourishing society. Not saying that I'm going to impose them by force, not saying that I'm going to run in and say Facebook must do this or that, but just looking at the the underlying values that we hold as a, as a society. I think that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And the people that are so quick to jump to Facebook's defense and say, oh, well, they can censor whatever they want to. Well, they're not gonna be very happy when I say that you know ABC's store doesn't have to let black people in because it's their private property. And I do hold that as the, as the right of a private property holder, but that doesn't make it right. And if we live in a society where everybody thinks that we can exclude black people, that's not going to be a flourishing society, so I think there's a point where our libertarian philosophy is not enough, and sometimes I think, as libertarians, we try to do too much with this philosophy in terms of you know what is necessary for the broader good of a you know, flourishing society. I keep using that term because I want to emphasize that uh, yeah that's what we're striving for, so yeah, sir, sure. I mean Facebook can can whatever it wants to but i think it's a dangerous sign when we see all of these these people the thinking in society is moving towards this mentality of censorship it's just as dangerous as when let's use another example you know the ideas that a culture and a society hold will bubble to the surface and dictate the policies When we had a mentality in the 1820s that it was perfectly permissible to own certain human beings, we had an institution of slavery, right? It took a change of mentality before slavery started to disappear. And of course, it disappeared rather late in history in the United States for various political reasons. But there had to be a change of heart, a change of thought that said, you know what, you can't own a human being. And that change of thought brought about changes in policy. Well, if we are evolving to a change of thought where the vast majority of people in society hold that, it's perfectly fine to censor certain types of speech. At some point, it's not gonna just be Facebook because we're dealing with something that's underlying in, in yeah. the, the. and I say this all the time. People ask me, well, how are we going to get liberty? You know, when are we, how how do we get liberty? and we we have the Libertarian Party, and we're going to do all of these policies. We're not going to get liberty until a critical mass of people believe in private property, believe in self-ownership, believe in the non-aggression principle. Those have to pervade society before we're going to have societal structures that reflect that. And we seem to be going backward. We're creating societal structures and, and processes yeah. of thought that are actually anti-libertarian. And the libertarians who are all excited about this and saying, oh, well, it's a private company, so they can do it. I saw today that uh, there's actually some, it was one of the state LP chapters, I think was advocating for private coronavirus vaccine passports. You know, so it's okay if we, we can restrict <laughs> you from as long as it's private, it's all good. Well, no, I mean, you know, just starting with the fact that the entire vaccine program is based on the government. You uh, mean like no
0: with. no shirt, no shoes, no mask, no passport, no service? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> We're gonna have a really long list here by the end of the decade, right? Like, no, yeah,
1: every we, door is gonna have like a poster on it. It's like uh. <laughs> it's gonna be like written by meanwhile, lawyers. Meanwhile, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, be locked in my house. Thank goodness for Amazon, right? Right. <laughs> Speaking of Amazon. One of the things you were just talking
0: about, if it's private, it's okay, you know, not not quite being the right reaction, even by libertarians at all times for other reasons. Another, another thing that I've I've heard recently, just in conversations with people, that libertarians should also be critical of property owners who abuse, say, their employees or do things that are, you know, to be looked down upon, right? So like not giving their employees bathroom breaks the way Amazon, you know, is allegedly not doing well at treating their employees or trying to block unionization, which is a perfectly libertarian thing to do for people to collectively choose to come together and bargain, okay? So like the critique here is is basically that libertarians need to be more critical of any sort of corruption of power, even if it's not from the
1: state. What do you think about that? I think there's some validity in it. I think that, again, there's this desire to make libertarianism into more than it actually is. Libertarianism is a political philosophy, and it has certain things to say about how we organize ourselves in society in terms of laws or rules, if you don't like the word laws. And I think that libertarianism is i I would consider my libertarianism to be quote unquote thin to me libertarianism is respect for private property respect for self ownership non aggression those are the keys and then we can talk about these these other things economics and and uh you know, how we deal with people of of other races or ethnicities or other power structures. I don't necessarily think that that's within the context of libertarianism. Libertarianism has to do with the government, the politics of our society. Now, that's not to say that I'm just going to say, oh, well, you know, these private companies can do whatever we want. Oh, absolutely. I think it's perfectly legitimate to criticize, you know, a, a private property owner that does horrible things. Uh, I'm certainly going to criticize you know, somebody that says that my wife and I can't come in their house because they disapprove of interracial marriages. That would be a horrible thing to think, in my personal opinion. On the other hand, as a libertarian, I'm not gonna demand that I should be able to go into their house.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so- This is where the Confederate
1: flag outside might've been helpful, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we would have known if you had left your Confederate flag up. Yeah, so, you know- Again, I guess I'm hedging a little bit, but I, I don't know. I think there are things that we need to address in society that we don't necessarily have to address within the libertarian philosophy itself. I mean, as Christians, there are certainly a whole slew of moral and ethical yeah. things that we think about and we think are important as Christians that we're not going to to go and try to, uh, you know, impose, that's where the problem comes. It becomes a problem of imposition. I
0: think a deeper level version of that or or a follow-up could be something along these lines that libertarian. Okay. So let's say libertarians are all about, we need to be critics of the state and so do Christians. But also in addition to that, as Christians, we need to be critical of corrupt power in just say big business for right now, or big tech or big whatever, or even, even small business. I mean, there are small businesses who don't treat their employees well. Like, you know, there's 20 employees or four employees and the the boss doesn't treat them well, but, you know, because that's the best job they can get, that's what they're taking. I guess one could say that libertarians give themselves a get-out-of-critical-responsibility free card because, well, libertarianism doesn't say anything about private owners. That's a whole different ethical ballgame or it's a different, you know, ethical framework or thought. And maybe, maybe we should be, as humans, thinking more about that. It's like, oh, well, if we believe that power corrupts, then somebody within a smaller sphere of power corrupting, like we can say something about that. But maybe that's just the other side of our humanity speaking, not our libertarianism.
1: Yeah, I think you're onto something there. And, you know, the thing that's really difficult in the world that we live in is that as as libertarians, particularly somebody like me who's a libertarian anarchist or a market anarchist, I certainly have this uh, utopian view of what the world should look like. And there are a lot of issues that are really hard to address within that anarchist you know framework because it doesn't exist. So I think a really good example of that is the issue of immigration. You know, you can argue both sides of that because the whole thing is fundamentally based on statism. I mean, the fact that you've drawn a line is statism. So how do you deal policy-wise with something that is inherently statist as somebody who doesn't believe in the legitimacy of the state? <laughs> and and that that comes, you know, that comes into play in a lot of different ways. Uh, thinking about corporate power. We were discussing this a little bit before before we actually started recording. You know, corporations are, by their very natures, the product of the state. The laws of the state create the framework through which corporations exist. Now, certainly, you know, in a a world absent the state, there would be large organizations that would do things like corporations, but they would look different. Because the whole thing now is based on the existence of the state. Uh, I, I mentioned the coronavirus passports. you know, there's people, oh we should have private coronavirus passports. How do you do that when the entire vaccine system is built on and, and run by the government? So there's so many things that that I have to struggle with as somebody who has these ideals of a stateless society. How do I look at these individual policy matters? You know how how do I deal with these in the real world that I live in? And that's sometimes a challenge, and for me, it generally goes to decentralization of power. I want to devolve power to the smallest unit possible. So you know in, in my political work, Tenth Amendment Center, I want to devolve power away from the federal governments, towards the state and local governments because I think they're easier to control. That's my pragmatic practical solution, but I think there's a lot of things like that that we live in a world that the state has molded and shaped. How do we deal with policies that are status no matter which way you look at it? You know? That's tough.
0: Yeah, it sure is. The one thing I wanted to write down on what you said was living in the real world is difficult.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean <laughs> there there's your there's your title. There's your show title. Living in well, the real world
0: is difficult. Huh yeah maybe we'll go with that well, Mike I think uh we've we've used up our time here, so I really appreciate this conversation because one, I get to pick your brain about things and and wonder and you know how my thoughts are kind of shaped by the way you think and also just like how am I thinking and how does that compare to what you're thinking and saying, and you know I get to ask you the question and you get to spit out your <laughs> your ad hoc answer or maybe not ad hoc, but just like you know at the moment answer, because I didn't ask it ahead of time, but.
1: No, yeah, uh, I mean, that's, I it, it is, it's, and I think it's important to, to wrestle with some of these broader ideas, because, uh, you know, I think a lot of times as, as libertarians, I think there's a, a personality trait involved there, and we like things to be black and white, you know, we like to argue and debate, and we like, we're, we like ideas, but sometimes the world is messy, and, you know, sometimes the, the answers aren't so easy. And, you know, particularly, like, as I said, in, in a world that is dominated by the state, and if you want to go into uh, William Stringfellow theology, that's basically, it's a world dominated by Satan, which is ultimately dominated by death. It becomes difficult to, to flesh our way through some of these things. And, and so it requires some critical thinking. We have a wonderful political philosophy in libertarianism, I think, that gives us a good framework to start from, but it's not adequate in addressing every issue uh, that we face as human beings, and certainly not as believers in Christ.
0: Well said. And when you and I have a conversation about Stringfellow, because I also have the books that you do on my nightstand, we will probably have notes for that one.
1: (laughs) We will definitely have notes for that one because uh, he's he's not an easy read. So
0: yeah. Well, Mike, at some point in the future, I believe that conversation will happen. But for now, thanks for joining me for Unscripted uh, episode. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you like today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group. You are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian
1: Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.